Hey, everybody. Welcome back to Off the Couch on the Blister Podcast Network. I'm Jonathan Ellsworth, and you can check out everything we're doing and reviewing over at blisterreview.com. Today, we are very happy to have Jason Hardrath back on Off the Couch, and the occasion is to talk a bit about a thing that Jason recently did. Namely, his completion of the Rocky Mountain Grand Slam in under 40 days. And that, folks, involves the summiting of 122 peaks, which amounts to an average of more than three peaks per day. And to put this in just a bit more perspective, the completion of the Rocky Mountain Grand Slam is the equivalent of completing 26.7 marathons with over 318,000 feet of elevation gain. And that, folks, is the equivalent of summiting Everest from sea level 11 times. So Jason and I talk about how he was feeling coming into the start of this project, what proved to be some of the most difficult aspects of completing the Rocky Mountain Grand Slam, why it is that Jason pursues projects like these in general, and more. And so, let's get to my latest conversation with Jason Hardrath. Here we go. Well, Jason, it is very good to connect with you again. Uh, how are you today and where are you today? I am sitting at 10,000 feet above sea level in Leadville, Colorado. Just hung out and kind of surprise ended up crewing for a friend of mine, Tyler Andrews here. And yeah, just been recovering since uh, finishing the big project for the summer. Yeah, well, uh, to use your words... You recently did a thing. What did you do? Uh, Yeah, I recently did a thing. Um, Yeah, that's been a a phrase I like to toss around now that I've been around the block once or twice Mm -hmm. with this stuff. Oh, I did a thing. Um, That thing this time happens to be what's known as the Rocky Mountain Grand Slam or Rocky's Grand Slam. Um, It is a combination a uh, list of three different states, state lists. Um, it's a combination of the 58 14ers in Colorado, the 37 13ers in Wyoming, and the 27 12ers in Montana. 14ers being 14,000 foot peaks, 13ers being 13,000 foot peaks, and 12ers being 12,000 foot peaks. So it's like this grand tour of the American Rockies hitting every significant peak across three states. And it was, uh, yeah, it was everything I asked for and more. <laughs> um, when did the Rocky Mountain Grand Slam first get on your radar? How did you first hear that this thing was a thing? Yeah, so uh, actually it goes back to, you know, one of our, one of our first conversations was, was around the, um, the Bulgers and the Journey to 100 yep. film, which, you know, people tuning in now, they can go back and listen to our previous episode. Yeah. Um, I think it's like FKTs, you know, Jason Hardrath, FKTs and what makes him tick Um, and watch Journey to 100, which is a a film about my first 100 FKTs and climbing the 100 tallest peaks in the state of Washington. Well, as I was doing the research and putting the pen to the paper on actually like 
figuring out how to put those hundred peaks together in 50 days, I came across the Rocky Mountain Grand Slam. It was like, oh, that's that's definitely a future project if this one comes together. Um, so that was back in 2021. So it's been a couple of years. Took took kind of a year off. Year off. I still did the uh, California f- 14ers by by bike human powered record last year, but that's 15 peaks and took a lot less time. Only took a week, uh, just under a week, six days, 22 hours. Um, but kind of a shorter a shorter summer, right? Not a nonstop month plus yeah. project. And so yeah, kind of kind of took a, an easier year for the body because I was kind of facing some health issues. Some biomarkers were off in my blood. I wasn't feeling right um hormones were a bit off um so just kind of was like yeah this is definitely should be a year that i don't overdo it and so yeah i kind of came into this one stuff still bit a bit a bit off my training wasn't where i wanted it to be still has have some stuff off health wise medical wise um but i knew like i was in a good enough place i was feeling good enough that i was like i think i think this still goes and who knows if you know a year from now or two years from now if i you know because some people were like man it's a really bad snow year Hmm. you should wait yeah. And it's like, yeah, I don't, there's no promises, right? Because, I mean, part of my backstory for people who haven't tuned in to anything I've done before is I had a big car accident in 2015. Then I was at the top of my uh, Ironman game at that point. It's like, yeah, that was going to be the year I went from qualifying for 70.3 world championships to jumping up to, you know, qualifying for Kona. Like, I could just feel it. Like, my training was on a whole different level. Like, massive, more volume, more intensity, and feeling great. Um, and then went out a car window and couldn't get my own drink of water. Like Sunday went for a 140 mile bike ride. Wednesday couldn't get my own drink of water. Um, and it's like in a, in a snap, in an instant, you know, things can change. I'm like, no, I have, I have the body. I have the fitness. I have the skill set. I have the mind. I have, I have the uh, motivation. Like, even though it's a bad snow year and it'll, you know, slow me down. It's like, I'm going to go, I'm going to go for this right now. Um, and I mean, that's been a core part of my philosophy that, it's like stuff doesn't have to be perfect. If you're always waiting for things to be perfect, you're not, you're never going to end up pulling the trigger and you're going to, you're going to look back in the rear view mirror and be like, damn, I wish I would have gone. And I try to live my life in such a way that I have no, I wish I would have. And so this was one where I kind of knew it's like, yeah, stuff's not right. My body's not quite right. The conditions aren't quite right, but it's good enough. It'll go. And I'm going to be more proud of myself when I look in the mirror, if I went for it, even if it's harder, even if it's slower. Then if I let this one slide by and then because something happens, I miss out on it. So yeah, pull, pull, pulled the trigger on trading fitness for this grand tour. So, okay. What you didn't just say is I'm still going to go for it. Even if I don't complete it, that sounds like that wasn't really in your realm of possibilities. Maybe you've just said, maybe it wouldn't go as quickly as I would want it, but I guess that was the question while you were talking that I was wondering about. If you were trying to weigh, like it was a big snow year, you're not feeling 100%. How much did it weigh on you? Like, what if I, what if I don't break this record? What if I just can't even finish it? If you had come in thinking, there's actually a pretty significant chance I don't complete this, would that have caused you to hold off? Hmm. That's a great question. Um, yeah, I mean, to, to some degree, there's always this element internally, I think. And I think this is how like motivation works. I always tell people when you're trying to plan a big adventure and you're like, it's like a dream. Something's grabbed you, right? It has you. 
and you're like, oh, I think I should do this thing. I think I should do this thing. I think I should do like what you have to do is you have to put the pin. Like I said, at the start of this, you have to put the pin to the paper. You have to really get down into the nuts and bolts and the nitty gritty, the skill sets, the time on feet, the pace, the, you know, the vert per, you know, per day, per week, per month, you know, like all these different, like nitty gritty details. You get down into it. You see what technical skills you're going to need and either you get an increase in motivation as you go into that high level of granularity. And it's like, oh, this is the right project for me. Like the more I know about it, the more stoked I get. Or you get a drop in motivation as you really put the pen to the paper. And that says either it's not the project for you. Like maybe you, I don't know, like it's a highly technical project and you have kids and a family to provide for. And it doesn't feel right to take that kind of risk um, because of the family reasons. It's like, yeah, that's listen to that. Um, that's your, your intuition guiding you. Or it could just be a sign that you're not ready yet. Like you're lacking some skill set. You're lacking some, some fitness to extend yourself that far on a frontier adventure. And you need more experiences testing your fitness and building your fitness in more controlled environments. Um, cause I mean, obviously with the stuff I do, it's like, I have over 150 races in my background. I've climbed hundreds of peaks, probably bordering near 500 different peaks. Well, that counts repeats on various peaks as well. It's like there's a lot, there's a lot of uh, hay in the barn, a lot of background <laughs> that I'm drawing on to to draw these conclusions. I've done a ton of technical rock climbing. Um, I have a lot, a lot of skill sets and knowledge and knowledge of myself and what I'm capable of in different settings and different levels of fatigue to draw upon to have like an intuitive response to like, does this project go? And so like, if I was looking at, you know, down the barrel of a gun at a project and I found my motivation dropping, like it felt very, very impossible, then yeah, I don't, I don't think I would step into something that it was just like, I'm setting myself up for failure, right? There's some level of, you know, wisdom that has to go into these things. And, you know, especially if I would be setting myself up for the kind of failure that could put others at risk who have to rescue me, like, I'm not going to step into that situation. There has to be a, a strong, like, there's always a, right, there's a chaotic element. There's an unknown, like, this could go wrong. Like, it's not guaranteed that I can do that. Like there's always a question mark, but, but there should be some intuitive part inside of you. Some, some expert level knowledge that says, yeah, but if stuff goes right, I can do this, mm -hmm. you know, <laughs> and not the opposite. I love the part about, you know, the, the more granular you get into a project, if you get more excited about it, that that's a good signal. I, I think that, is pretty great. But I'm I'm wondering if you might be able to attach a sort of percentage to this. So for you learning more about this, it's a massive undertaking. If you're thinking like, yeah, if if things go right and let, let's talk about that at any step you could badly badly sprain an ankle in a very mundane way in a very mundane spot and that could actually set you back. So uh, acknowledging <laughs> that things could go wrong kind of at any step when you are thinking, but if it goes right, I bet I can pull this off. I, 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 what's motivating this question is I, some years ago, was talking to a professional skier and he was talking about, he, they were done filming and they saw 80 foot air, an 80 foot cliff. And the pro skiers were standing around looking at it. We're like, man, that thing looks sick, but 
dear Lord, they were all scared. And this guy is like, so I looked at that thing and I was like, I I bet there's like a 20% chance I can land this. So I went and did it. And and after he said 20% chance, I thought the next sentence was, so we walked away and went and, you know, like had dinner that night. I was like, 20% was good enough for him in that instance. That's why I'm wondering if you assign like a percentage, if yours is like 50-50, if you're trying to operate more on like 90%, do you think this way? Yeah, I feel like, I mean, obviously like landing a one-off cliff drop <laughs> and, you know, his, his, his equation was landing it versus like dying um, or having, you know, ending up, ending up in the hospital. I think, I think the 20% went a little closer to... I don't break both legs. There's like a... Oh, okay. So this, there we go. Yeah. So, anyway, shout out to Garrett. Um, but... Uh, yeah, shout out to Garrett for sure. <laughs> yeah, maybe maybe I'm not that much of an adrenaline junkie. I'm more of an endurance athlete. I like to, I like to have the screws tightened down a little tighter than that, yeah. for sure. Um, it's probably wise. To, to me, skill-wise, skill I like these big projects, right? Because you're extending yourself so far and you're you're like running this gamble of just how fatigued you're going to be when you run into various bits of highly technical terrain that ex- that's exposed where it's like yeah if i fall at that point either permanently maimed or in the or or dead or dead like those are the two options um and so running out you know these big 18 20 hour days back to back and then crossing these these sections where you spend a number of hours on terrain that's like that. It's like, I, you know, I don't have a death wish. I want to, I want to approach it with some level, like being sure that I have some gas in the tank for those. So I definitely like scan those principal hazards of a given, you know, big endeavor and go, okay, I want, I want the sureness that I can execute those to be, yeah, definitely in excess of 90%. Because I don't know. It feels like I would be a damn fool if I did otherwise, since my primary motivation, right? My why behind why I do what I do is I do to teach. Mm -hmm. I do these big projects because it gives me permission to speak wisdom and knowledge that I rescue through the process of doing these grand endeavors to then share with my students and share in settings like this and share on stages as I show my films I do it because it gives me a chance to give value to the communities around me. And if I just go out there like a damn fool, then what wisdom do I really have to offer? And also if I end my life, then it's all done. Um, So it's like to some degree, those screws in the high risk situations are tied down pretty tight. And some people would instantly disagree with me. It's like climbing off a rope on fifth class terrain, like is is in no way managing your risks, especially fatigued. But I kind of have, like I said, a long list of how I've performed in the past in technical terrain. In my younger years, I was very animated by pursuing run plus free solo on easy, moderate, fifth class terrain. And so I kind of ran a lot of experiments in that domain. And I don't I don't push my limits as far as I used to in that regard, in that specific domain. And yeah, I, I approached it very, very intentionally back then. So it's like I. I'm nowhere near those limits on these bigger projects. So that feels like it's dialed in really tight, like 99%, let's say on like the enduring fitness, uh, record pace part of it. Maybe it's 70, 
30, 80, 20. Like there's a little more of a like, yeah, if stuff goes right, like there's still a possibility I can't move fast enough. I melt down. I get an overuse injury uh, on that level. You know, I'm willing to like yard it out mm-hmm. a bit more. Yep. But, you know, with a project, a project of this size where you're dedicating a month more of your life again, like I, I tighten it down a little tighter. If it's a one day to five day project. Yeah, I'll take a I'll take a 30 percent chance that I can I can go out and beat it because it's like a few days of your life going really, really hard and like being unsure. It's like that's kind of fun. Yeah. Having a month of your life, a month plus of your life, you know, and yeah, it's like it's like you want you want the screws to be a little a little bit tightened down from that, like just flip a coin and see what happens especially with the the life or death stuff. Yeah, definitely not flip a coin. Like, uh, I mean, actually, this is a big issue. I'll go ahead and uh, use this platform to take a chance to talk on this. Like some people have, have passed recently soloing on easy terrain in the mountains. And it's, uh, it's gotten people discussing like, is this okay? What, are we approaching this in the right way? Is our culture around this properly aligned? And I do see problems. Like no one should go solo any high risk, high consequence terrain just because their friends are doing it just because their community's doing it. That's not the right mind space to go from. Like you shouldn't just be pushing the risks out of your mind to create a magic, magic land where, Oh, nothing, nothing bad will happen to me today. Cause if you're operating from that place, it's like you slip and fall. Like I guarantee there's a lot of regret involved in those final moments. And that to me on a sort of spiritual level is problematic. I always approached my soloing projects, even when I was a younger man, like very, as I said, very animated, very taken, very like it had a hold of me. I had this one solo project in Red Rocks, Nevada, outside of Vegas. It's this, it's 1500 feet of five, six, pretty sustained. And for some reason, when I climbed it on a rope, and obviously that's a big part of it, right? You rehearse things first. You always know what's coming if you're going to solo it. You don't just go out and be like, oh, I'm going to on-site solo a route with no idea how to get down, um, which has started happening now where people will just go out and start climbing. So it's like, no, that's not at all how you do that. Um, so I get on this thing and I'm like, yeah, this is it. And it was just like, it had me, right? Where I like knew I was going to animate a chapter of my life to reaching a place that I could solo that route. And... I, in that process, like building the skills, building the fitness, building the strength to know I could make every move of that 1500 feet confidently and with plenty left in the tank to deal with any issues that arose like, oh, a team won't let me pass. So now I'm hanging here an extra, you know, 30 minutes or an hour, you know, like with enough in the tank that I could navigate issues like that on the day I went and did it. Um, But also like deeply pondering the consequences and reflecting on the consequences of, you know, sort of like stoic philosophy, right? Like, you know, dwell on the things that can go wrong, memento mori, you know, like, like consider the full aspect, right? I, and I did this even as a road cyclist years ago when I was training for Ironman, it's like, I'd pass an animal that got hit on the road. It's like, that could be me. That could be, that could be Jason Hardrath, a pile of carbon atoms on the side of the road, right? And this probably is a pretty dark for some people to listen to, but it's like, if you're going to go enter into something, It's like, you need to know the true choice you're making because otherwise you're just like making it from a place of magic, magic land, like bad things don't happen. Um, And I think with soloing something with such high consequence, it's like you need to dwell on the fact that if things go wrong, it will be very, very painful and it will leave people around you in a lot of pain. And if, if you can dwell on that and still be absolutely driven 
and passionate to do the thing, then that's the right place to, to enter into a, a soloing relationship with a piece of rock. Um, that's the right, that's the right headspace. Like it truly has you then you, you know, it's something like this is, I'm wired in such a way that this is what I need to do. And you're, you're making that decision from like what I would say is a place of knowledge, a place of understanding. Like I'm considering the fullness of my decisions. And that's very different, I think, than a decision of like, well, my friends are doing it, so I guess I'll do it. I guess nothing bad will happen. It's like, it just shouldn't be taken lightly. Hmm. Um, the consequences are too high to be entered into lightly. Um, so yeah, I guess that's, that's my, my, my opinion on the whole matter, like with, with these deaths that have happened recently. Um, I'm definitely never going to tell someone who's passionately driven toward it to be like, ah, give up your dream. It's too risky. Um, cause I've, I've found an incredible amount of gratification from the pursuits I've had. Um, but it's like, you can't, you can't just not think and, and go do it. Um, it's just not one of those things. It's not a, it's not like, Oh, I guess I'll sign up for this 50 mile mountain bike race without training and see what happens. Free soloing is not that kind of, not that kind of sport. Mm-hmm. Um, not that kind of endeavor. So yeah, that's my, that's my, uh, my soapbox, my 411 on, on that. <laughs> well, I think it is timely for sure and needed to be said. And, and it, we do have folks like you doing very impressive, very technical things in the mountains. And I kind of feel like increasingly this just gets called running. And I'm, I'm like, hmm. We're free soloing, folks. You know what I mean? Like, I feel like running and trail running. I'm sorry, I'm using a lot of quote, uh, air, air quotes, scare quotes here. We're really expanding sort of what it means to participate in the community, I think we could say. And I think everybody would be wise to p- hit the pause button. And as you've kind of said, like, just because your friends are doing it, just because it seems like, aspects of the sport are maybe being maybe marketed um or there's just uh for understandable reasons a lot of attention is being given to this stuff good moment for the proverbial know thyself and to understand like are are you someone who is really passionate about just enjoying single track cuz that's awesome and do that and you shouldn't need to apologize for that and I mean, I think every, every one of these mountain sports goes through this, you know, um, oh, yeah. where things are being pushed. And I think that's cool, but there's also like, just because somebody else is doing that doesn't mean I'm ready to do that or frankly need to have any interest in that, you know, anyway. Okay. Absolutely. No, I totally agree. I totally, I completely agree. I mean, we're kind of in this, uh, infinite, somewhere between infancy and adolescence, of blending our newfound knowledge and abilities with ultra endurance and, and all the nutrition breakthroughs and, and training science and all that. And then that now getting blended into the mountaineering and rock climbing and technical terrain environment where it's like, Whoa, look, we can push and do these crazy things and, and push limits in in multiple sports all at once. Um, I mean, you see it all the way up to what Alex Honnold is doing now that he's you know done with uh, LCAP. Like he's doing a bunch of these like, cover ultra distance terrain and mix his ability to solo 511 terrain into that. So it's like we see it going all the way up this interest to to blend sport. And I mean also what I've 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 talked with people about in the past is we're also at this place 
where the transfer of information has gotten to be so fast that, yeah, I can in a reasonable amount of time, like even 10 years ago, it would have taken like probably years to put together the information I put together on these peaks, uh, but especially in Washington. But then again, with the, you know, three states worth of, uh, you know, 122 peaks worth of information on routes and, and locations and trailheads and uh, driving directions, like all this, it's like you can transfer that information between people so much faster and with so much more granularity at a, at at speed to be like, yeah, the technical spot is here and it lasts this long and like, okay, cool. Now I know where that is. So I can mentally prep for it. Like how can I plan to arrive there in daylight? Right. So it's like very quickly, we can build out these much bigger projects than before. So it's like, we have this ultra endurance knowledge. Now this knowledge base, we have uh, this ability to transfer it larger projects quickly. So yeah, a lot more people are going to find their way into, into doing these projects, but it's, you know, if, if you're mixing this technical terrain in, it's not something to be, yeah, taken lightly to just do it because, well, this guy looked cool while doing it. Yeah, it's, it's something to be taken seriously. Um, it's something that it should definitely fill your heart and soul if you're going to step into that kind of risk. And if you find your heart and soul filled by just running single track or, you know, climbing, climbing 510 on a rope, like, mm-hmm. <laughs> awesome, yeah. Then, yeah. then good, good. And I, I, I think... Right. There is this, you know, because people even look at the level of risk I take, right? If they're a traditional mountaineer, especially if they're a person in a a role that they teach people courses on how to climb, like they look at what I'm doing and, you know, there's some frown on, there's some frowning upon some of the risks I take and the way I approach things. Like you should never cross fifth class terrain and not be roped up. And I think there's always going to be a yin and a yang there where you're going to have some people who are like trying to push into the chaos and the edges of the sport to to like cut a new line, to be at the cutting edge, to, to do a new thing, to do it in a way it's never been done or do it faster, um, to establish a new route. And then you have the people that like, you know, kind of like just want to enjoy the sport, want to enjoy the mountains or enjoy rock climb or enjoy trail running. And there should be right. I, when someone tells me like, yeah, you're taking risks. I'm like, yep, you're right. People shouldn't do it just like I do it the everyday user shouldn't do it just like I do it. You're right to critique me and be critical of me and to tell the community around you who are like learning. That's not the way to do it. Like you should be teaching the way that says, this is how you do a thousand of these trips and never have anything go wrong. Right. That's, that's their role is to, to keep the order, the, to teach the safest way. And the thing is, it's like, if you get too much of the order without any cutting edge, the sport gets boring. There's no like people doing interesting things. So there's no, no new people really getting drawn in. And on the other end, if you get too much of the chaos without people going, no, 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 no. Like this is the safe way to do this. Then you end up with a lot of these undue deaths and undue risk taking within the sport. Right? So it's this, it's this balance. How do you keep a sport from stagnating, but also balance that, like keeping the people who shouldn't be taking undue risk from taking undue risk. And I think that that's going to be the tug of war, right? As we continue to figure out how do these, how do we smash together ultra endurance and being in the mountains, in the backcountry, in on high risk terrain. Um, so yeah, we're going to, we're going to get to continue to wrestle with that and ask questions around that as a community. Back to the Rocky mountain grand slam. So I want to talk about cruxes. So on, 
I imagine when you're looking at this full project, you identify before you start the one or two peaks in particular where going into it, you're thinking, oh boy, okay, this is, this is going to be kind of the hardest thing of the entire project. But then there's the part where you actually get out there, start in on all of this, and we have to then factor in the days where maybe you didn't sleep well the night before, the condition of your feet, your legs are just blown out. And that can then present new cruxes on stuff that maybe at the beginning you wouldn't have thought were going to be big deals. I'm just curious to what extent you dealt with that on this particular project. That's a great question. Um, so absolutely. I, like I said, I, I tally up the location and length and duration and all that of, of my principal hazards for, for a given project. And then I sort of weigh even at different scales. Right. So yeah, you could look at like a single peak as a crux peak, but then also like with a project this big, the wind river range is a backcountry push with 32 peaks in the backcountry. where if you don't bat a thousand while you're on that 32 peak backcountry push, you lose 17 miles out and 17 miles back in to restock your supplies or get whatever else you need to come back and try to get whatever peak you missed. Um, so you get a whole ultra marathon added on if you make a mistake, if stuff doesn't come together. Um, and like, so that whole backcountry push, even though like there are a lot of the most technical peaks of the whole project back there, uh, but only like four of them. Uh, but it's just the idea of like going out and batting a thousand for basically a week in the backcountry with some of the most technical peaks mixed into those pushes and link ups that it's like, for me, the wind river range, it was like, this is what, this is like make or break. Like, this is the place where I need to have the, the right crew and I need to have my head together and I need to be dialed with the supplies I bring out and like stuff needs to go right. Cause the cost, the cost is pretty high for the big pro the full project. If things don't, um, then I ended up uh, like I did all this planning and then I ended up having a crew crew member need to bail on me. Um, and so we did end up doing that bonus ultra marathon, um, 34 miles round trip. And that was a pretty frustrating moment. That was a tough human moment to have, have that crew member go like, yeah, I know, I know what this costs for you, but I'm, I gotta go. And so it was just like, Oh wow. Like that was, you want to talk about navigating human relationship in a moment where like, we're supposed to be a high functioning team collectively focused on the goal. Like that's why we're all here. And then to have that not be the case in the moment it mattered most for like the whole project, that was a pretty, pretty tough moment to, to, to navigate through as sort of the team leader and the, the one who the push mattered to the most. But yeah, I, I looked at the wins as this big crux as far as within that there's a peak called spearhead that had a, an exposed fifth class crux that I was kind of concerned about. Like, is this going to fall within the category within the rules I have for myself of what I'm willing to solo and what I'm not like one of those rules is uh, basically on any move of a fifth class section, I solo, I should be able to like take, take my hands off and rest. Like it should be positive enough, leaning forward enough mm -hmm. that, you know, even if the holds are small and like the moves are like awkward, like I should be able to rest at like 99% 
of the exposed section. And if it breaks that rule, it could be like one move if there's not much exposure or two moves if there's not a ton of exposure where it's like, yeah, I couldn't rest as I made this sequence. But then the next move is like a bomber hold and you pull up onto an easy ledge. So it's like I have kind of these rules of how it works for me. And it's like, will this fall in that or will it be, you know, something where it's like, no, now we need to figure out how to pull this rope out and put some protection in. And um, that starts to take more time for the day, especially when you're trying to link up six other peaks on the same day. And it ended up, yeah, it fell within within my rules of, yeah, this is something that I can just pull through and then down climb. Uh, but that was kind of a cruxy moment where it's like, what is that going to be? Yeah. And, you know, we had to carry that extra weight in to be prepared for that. Um, then that whole day became really interesting, actually. Climbing up to Warren was interesting. Getting down from Warren involved um, this, like, steep, snowy Kular that had some icy sections. That got pretty spicy. And then the route finding up Turret, uh, the peak that came after Warren, uh, was just, like, all over the place, like, kind of wrapping around the mountain and finding the right gullies and crossing back over the mountain and then getting on the ridge. It was a really, just the whole day, it's like, I look back at it, it's like, man, that was a day. And then as far as one where I, I knew it was going to be a crux ahead of time, Coven is considered one of the fifth class difficult peaks back in there. It's right next to uh, Gannett. Yeah, got to make sure I got the right name. Yeah, Gannett back in there, which is the tallest, um, but Coven's more technical. Uh, the tallest in Wyoming, I should say. And so, yeah, there's this question of like what Coven is going to be like. And right, Coven sat in this link up again of like six peaks in the same day. And so, right, it's like, whew, you're balancing a lot of fatigue. You're balancing what time will we arrive there? Also, we were battling like storm windows in the afternoons of like, don't want to be locked in up high on a narrow ridge, you know, fourth, fifth class ridge line and have a thunderstorm roll in. Like, that's not what you want. <laughs> um, you know, you can move fast. You can move pretty fast to get out of a storm on like second class. You know, for me, even like third class terrain, I can move pretty quick on or you know, you find a place to get at least somewhat shielded under a rock or a boulder. But yeah, as soon as you get up on those narrow ridge lines, it's like you're committed until you climb the whole thing up and you climb the whole thing down. Um, so it was kind of this like crux, you know, crux within a crux that like loomed large in my mind and then got on it and just flowed up to the top. Everything felt smooth and great. Like the route finding, like my mind just was like in the zone with like, yeah, this side of this rock, this side of the ridge here, flow over here. Um, and just flew up to the top. And I just remember being so stoked out of my mind and just like hollering from the top of the mountain. Um, just, you, you know, just, <laughs> just that energy where you're like, yes, this was a big moment and it came together so efficiently, so much more efficiently than I expected. Hmm. So that was one where it's like, I expected it to be a certain difficulty and it was like, Whoa, that went, that actually went way better than expected. So yeah, there's, there's a few moments like that. And then yeah, the other big crux, like as far as like a zoomed out crux was going to be the whole Montana push, which I knew was like 103 miles of I'm just in the backcountry off trail. I think there's for that 103 miles, there's five or six miles of trail and the rest is all just, you know, third class, fourth class, a little bit of fifth class, um, you know, some second class as well, but just like no trail, you know, no, no brain off walk on the yeah. trail miles. It's always like, am I going the right way? Is this the right side of this uh, uh, river to be on? Is this the right side of the lake to be on? Um, like constantly making sure you're in the right place to stay efficient. That's just exhausting. It's one thing hearing you talk about like technical climbing. 
scary and you need to be game on. But just that every step you're like, is this right? <laughs> I don't I I um I don't know. Uh maybe a dumb thing to say, but I'd almost rather just get on technical like a technical climb where I know I'm sort of going at least in the right direction then I just think I I have a I go to mental mush when it's like on the route finding stuff when it's like man I'm really not sure like I probably just lay down in the field <laughs> yeah yeah no I mean that's you know part of the burden to bear so to speak mm-hmm. of of projects like this is just that like sitting in that mental unknown space and being able to manage that chaos and your reaction to it and i don't know i mean i guess you know we're kind of getting close to the end of our time here so i mean a big a big takeaway of this project for me actually kind of ties into that just like the amount of unknown especially toward the end of the project right colorado was just kind of like the warm-up like a lot of those peaks almost all those peaks have like trails sure you have the i did the four big technical traverses but even those within my skill set felt like this is pretty cruisy this is pretty rad there are a few moments on the um the bells traverse where i had to like snap my head in and be like yeah this is these aren't the kind of route climbing moves i like making this is kind of the style i don't like so i have to slap my head in place and be like no you can make these but other than that like pretty cruiser had a lot of fun but then yes the moment i stepped into wyoming and montana it was like here we go this is full on this is heavy this is heady this is focused real backcountry decisions route finding and sort of that task of keeping your head and your emotions together. And I guess the moment where it became the most real is in Montana, I made the mistake of pulling a fresh set of shoes out of the box that I hadn't worn before and putting them on my feet and be like, yeah, this will be great to have like fresh rubber, fresh shoes, uh, fresh lugs for, for this push. But then, you know, 20, well, less than 20, like 10 hours into the push, like my feet start melting and my toes start rubbing raw. Like, cause the shoes are, since they're so new out of the box, they're not ventilating well. Start to have to face that every step I'm going to take for this hundred plus mile push is going to be painful. There's going to be pain with every step stepping onto these raw feet. And every step is going to be like balancey and like techie and like jumping between boulders and stepping between boulders. And also the monsoons were rolling in. And so there was this element of like, not only am I racing for the record right now, like I'm racing to not lose four days sitting around for these monsoonal storms uh-huh. to, to blow through. And it's like looking at my pace and going into the night, like I opened with a 28 hour push in Montana before I laid down and rested. And like in the darkness of those nights of that 28 hour push, just like stuff sort of wanting to come unglued in my mind. Cause I'd been pushing for so long and the calculations in my head were like, you're not going to beat the storms. You're going to push this hard. You're going to feel this much pain. And then you're going to sit around and give up four days to the next guy. And just like facing that doubt and those anxieties and those frustrations and the pain, just like with every step, like all piling on top of each other and sitting with that. And then eventually as I I was kind of lost to that for a while and just really struggling. And then finally just went, cool. You know what? If this is if this is what I have to feel for every step of Montana to finish this thing, so be it. I'm just going to make space. Stay as long as you want feelings. Like, come and hang out. If it has to be five days of feeling this, so be it. And as soon as I made space for those feelings, it was like, oh, like that means I'm more than. I'm bigger than just what I'm experiencing in this moment. And it kind of shifts the feeling around. And it's like, okay, this is my burden to bear for however long I need to bear it to move toward the the completion of this passion project, this thing I love. And I think in a way that's, that's what we learn in, in these endeavors, whether it's running a hundred miler, you know, I'm sitting here in Leadville, the Leadville hundred just went off 
um, or doing a big mountain project. And in a way, right, I mentioned I, I, I do so that I can teach and I'm a teacher and I know my why is that I want to have permission to talk about the deepest, darkest struggles that we face as human beings. And in the why behind the why, right, I love the mountains. I love running. I love pushing my body. I love physical pursuits. But behind that even is I want to be able to look in the mirror and be proud of the man that looking back at me. I want to be able to look in the mirror and go, yeah, that guy, when it gets real, he doesn't give up. He doesn't say, well, the storms are coming. Better just call it now. He leans in and moves forward and goes and really finds out until the moment comes that it's like, yeah, no, you physically can't or like, the, you know, the storms are here now. Leave. Like until that moment comes where, you know, the, the bill comes due, he keeps moving forward. He, he moves forward into the storm. He moves forward into the risk. He moves forward into the pain. He carries that burden forward for what he dreams of, for what he hopes for, for what he thinks he can do. And I think that's the why behind the why is we want to be able to look at ourselves and know that we can carry that in the moments that matter. And I think that's one of the big takeaways from this project is just like being a person who doesn't melt in the face of adversity, who doesn't kneel, who instead, you know, shouts into the storm and says, do your worst. I'll be here. Um, and, you know, it's something I think, you know, we want to find out about ourselves in some way instead of wondering how, how we handle ourselves in the hard moments of life. And I think that applies really truly to all of life when we find these things out. Totally. One of the things that I started sort of thinking about or saying was just that at some point, life is going to come around and force you to answer the question, can you take a punch? Because we all get hit. We all get punched. And we all fail. At things and our ability to take that hit and to get up, sometimes find a new path, sometimes pivot, sometimes keep going directly back into it, into the chaos, into the storm. If we don't know what we can do, if we don't know what we're capable of, if we don't grow our capabilities in those regards, we're really going to lead less of a human life, I think. That is, I mean, somebody who's like, man, well, I'm never going to be scrambling on some technical peak in the middle of nowhere. Well, it doesn't matter. Life's coming for you in some other capacity that you will not see coming, right? That's just a fact of human existence. And so, just to underscore, I think everything you're talking about, this stuff is super important. And really, I do think, as you've said well, fundamental, uh, to, to every single human life. Yeah. Choose, choose elective suffering, choose difficult things that are toward something meaningful that you care about because choosing the elective suffering is the only thing that can prepare you for the suffering you don't choose in life. Mm. When, you know, the hard things come, whether it's a, a loved one passing, losing a job that you felt defined who you were, yep. you know, your friends moving away or passing, um, like hard things are coming. I, I, I always hate to like bring this up with, you know, students in moments where like we're having real conversations, like hard times are, are going to come. And, you know, you know, maybe you've already faced some of them, right? Sadly, I, I teach in a really high poverty school. So a lot of those kids have faced way too much trauma and difficulty already in their life. But it's like for all of us, hard times are, are going to come. And if you're going to be ready and confident to carry that, well, you have to have, chosen to carry some things on purpose along the way. 
Yeah, no, I completely agree. I completely agree. I think there's there's a lot more here than just self-serving. Hey, look at my medal. I did something cool. Like this isn't just a selfish pursuit. This is a pursuit that if we do it right, it serves us and it serves all of those we touch, hopefully for the remainder of our lives. And that's not nothing. That's not that's not pithy. That's not to be laughed at. Yeah, if that if there's something people can take away, it's like, yeah, no, bring bring the gold back to the village after you go out and slay your dragons. Go go out and slay your dragons, but then bring the gold back cuz that's that's what makes it worthwhile is to have gone out and made yourself into something, chosen to suffer towards something you dreamed of cuz it's going to teach you so much about yourself and so much about the world and so much about what humans ought to aim at to live a meaningful life. And then for the rest of your life, you get, you get to have the privilege and the burden yeah. of trying to hand that to others mm-hmm. and to, to rescue some wisdom from the past and to bring it into the present for the people around you. So yeah, that's, that's my 411 on that. <laughs> well, Jason, it's, it's great to connect again. And um, congratulations on slaying this, particular, this particularly big dragon and uh and even more thanks for coming and talking about it and sharing the experience and some of the lessons and um yeah i really appreciate you and what you do and why you do it and uh all the best to you going forward and i i look forward to the next conversation absolutely uh me too jonathan i'm excited you're 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 back on the show and (laughs) excited to have more conversations going forward awesome man well listen again congratulations and take care we'll talk to you soon Talk to you soon. Have a good one. Well, that's it for this edition of Off the Couch. I want to say thanks to Jason for the conversation. Thanks to the strikingly handsome Justin Bob for producing this episode. And thanks to you for listening. From all of us here at Blister, please take good care of yourself and everybody else. Please keep moving forward. And we will talk to you again real soon.